Hello and welcome to the podcast for the December 2008 issue of The Lancet Oncology. Richard Lane here with TLO's editor, Dr. David Collingridge. David, let's discuss a research article. This is looking at basal cell carcinoma, and it looks fairly unusual in the research field in that it's a randomized trial with five-year follow-up data, and this is comparing total surgical excision uh, of a basal carcinoma of the face with a microsurgical approach. An unusual type of article, is that right? Yes, this is a really interesting article. It's um, answering a long-standing question, namely whether a highly specialized, a very advanced surgical technique called Mohs micrographic surgery is more effective than standard excision for primary and recurrent basal cell carcinomas of the face. This is a crucial question because facial cancer not only needs an oncologically safe intervention, but it also ideally needs a good cosmetic outcome to prevent physical and psychological effects for the patient. Now, previous to this trial, the only available evidence suggesting that Mohs surgery was a valuable technique in this setting was derived from systematic reviews, retrospective analyses, and other non-comparative studies. Thanks David and can you just run us through the methodology of this study and it is from the Netherlands isn't it? Yes that's right this current study is from a group in the Netherlands who present five-year data on a trial originally reported in the Lancet in 2004. The original Lancet paper presented results after two years of follow-up. Now the current paper extends that data and presents a more robust assessment on the use of Mohs microsurgery. The trial randomized 408 patients with primary basal cell carcinoma and 204 patients with recurrent basal cell carcinoma from seven different hospitals to either standard surgical excision or to Mohs surgery. The primary outcome from the trial was tumor recurrence and secondary outcomes were determinants of failure and cost effectiveness. And David, briefly the results. There's, there are suggestions here that the microsurgery uh, was a better outcome, if you like, than the conventional excision, though there is an issue about statistical significance. Well, for patients with primary basal cell cancers, the results are not statistically significant in terms of recurrence, although the absolute number of recurrences was slightly higher than in the standard surgery group. But this result is not necessarily a negative one, because it actually confirms that the type of surgery used in this setting could be changed without affecting the outcome and thus the cosmetic benefits of doing a Mohs surgery come into the fore. For patients with recurrent basal cell cancer, the primary outcome significantly favoured Mohs microsurgery, and the secondary analysis also revealed that an aggressive histological subtype was a significant risk for recurrence. And David, cost-effectiveness is an issue here, isn't it? Because presumably microsurgery is more expensive than total excision. What was the finding here? Well, cost-effectiveness was done as part of a secondary analysis because Mohs surgery is technically more challenging than standard surgery and takes longer to do, so there is a cost implication. Now, there was a clear need to assess whether the inherently higher costs would outweigh the clinical benefits, especially if the major benefit was more of a quality of life issue than an oncological one. So the findings found that actually there was very little difference between the two approaches for either primary or recurrent disease, a difference of only about €250 between the two techniques. And you touched earlier about the importance of the cosmetic outcome. This is also factored in, isn't it, to the overall conclusion? Yes, absolutely. The number of patients presenting with this type of cancer at younger age is increasing rapidly. So this tends to shift the emphasis and need towards a good oncoplastic outcome rather than a purely oncological one. So taking all the evidence and and those conclusions together, what's the sort of bottom line, do you think, from this study? Well, on the basis of the primary outcome, the investigators conclude quite rightly that Mohs surgery should be the standard approach for facial recurrent basal cell carcinoma, whereas for primary disease 
excision surgery is sufficient in most cases, unless there's an overwhelming case for a good cosmetic outcome. Moving on, David, we're going to discuss a keynote comment, and this concerns, I think, the first of potentially many contributions to come from Joseph Simone. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Joe Simone has kindly agreed to write a series of keynote comments for us over the coming 12 months to periodically reflect on the progress in the provision of health care by the incoming Obama administration in the States. Now, Joe is very well known to most oncologists for his regular and entertaining opinion columns in Oncology Times, more notably for his distinguished tenures as director of St. Jude's Children's Hospital in Memphis for many years, his time at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Centre, and more recently his directorship at the Shands Cancer Centre at the University of Florida. And David, overall, I was quite surprised to read actually that he he paints a fairly sombre picture of what we should expect from the new Obama administration when it comes in next year. Have I got that right? And why, if so, why is that the case? Well, I wouldn't say the piece is sombre. I, th- I think it, Joe Simone is simply being more of a realist and a pragmatist and is simply not being carried away on the wave of enthusiasm that Obama's win has caused. Now, Obama's appointment certainly offers fresh opportunities and the possibility for change. There's no, no doubting that. But Joe's commentary is clearly reflective of someone who's been around long enough to have seen many administrations come and go through the White House. So perhaps has a better historical context that tempers enthusiasm. Yeah, I'm clearly far too enthusiastic. <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, he does point out that even some... Um, Tinkering around the edges, I think he says, can still bring about some significant progress. Yes, absolutely. Now, among certain camps, there's considerable expectation for sweeping changes in the United States healthcare system as a result of Obama's win. In reality, these changes, however much one would like to see them, are probably not practicable given how embedded the current system is. However, Joe Simone suggests that instead of focusing considerable efforts on massive changes that might not come to fruition, Obama could relatively easily do just three things that would make enough of a difference. First, rewarding higher quality care to get a better value for the healthcare dollar. Second, the US Senate could rescind the law that prevents federal government from driving costs down by negotiating directly with pharmaceutical companies. And third, an independent national committee, similar to the UK's National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence, should be set up to control costs and promote quality. Great. Well, it's a jolly good read. So people listening to this, please do go and read the um, keynote comment by Joe Simone and the promise of more to come as well, which is great. And finally, David, the leading edge this month, and this is looking at direct-to-consumer genetic testing, which presumably is becoming quite a topical, if you like, public in the literal sense health issue in countries like the United States. Yes it's becoming a very popular topic and and an issue of concern in in the United States and and also in a number of other countries because there's an increasingly wide range of tests becoming available for many types of cancer for example prostate and breast cancer just named two but there's also several broader genetic tests assessing risk across a wide range of diseases and there's the possibility of pre-implantation genetic determination that raises the ethical issues to an even higher level of debate. What are the main concerns about these direct-to-consumer, if you like, genetic um, profiling tests? Well, there are a number of issues here, including, for example, patient and individual privacy, data protection, regulation, inflation of healthcare costs, and the, the promotion of a false sense of well-being and subsequent risky behaviour among individuals not found at risk. But I suppose, David, turning around the other way, I suppose critics of this line might say, isn't it a good thing that people are 
becoming more aware or have the opportunity to become more aware of their genetic profiles which could predispose them to illness or disease? Well, yes and no. For a high-risk individual, there is clearly value in knowing whether they harbour an underlying genetic trait that might influence their chances of developing a certain disease. This knowledge can be used to engage that person in an appropriate screening programme to ensure that the disease, if the disease does develop, is caught early. Equally, there is clear value in conducting a test where there is a yes and no answer, because it drives a clear course of action. The problem here, however, is that for a majority of people targeted by these direct consumer tests, there is often no underlying factors to suspect they're susceptible to a certain disease. So the results only give an indication of risk, say a few percentage points, of developing this disease, such as cancer X or cancer Y. But what's the value of that? Would anyone seriously recommend an intervention on such a small percentage? Plus, these tests are generally based on a specific genetic mutation or mutations. But we all know that many cancers develop as a result of a multitude of genetic and environmental factors that are either poorly understood or unknown to us at this time. So the risk assessment from such a test is unlikely to offer any real practice-changing advice. Indeed, some of the results might highlight a small risk for a cancer that's untreatable. Again, what value does that knowledge have for the individual? As a result, in our opinion, many of these tests simply prey on people's insecurities for commercial gain and should only be used on the advice of healthcare providers on the basis of an underlying clinical suspicion. Thanks, David. And another great read. Those are some of the highlights from the December 2008 issue of The Lancet Oncology. Much more next month.